Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. A couple notes from me before we begin. I'm doing another survey to find out what you want from the podcasts and how I can make them better. Last year, we heard you loud and clear on the news front, and so have begun including a weekly news recap at the end of every Unconfirmed. This year, what would you like to see from Unchained and Unconfirmed? Please take a moment to fill out the survey to let us know what you'd like from the show. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Plus, Crypto.com has offered our survey respondents a chance to win a metal MCO Visa card, and Crypto.com will stake these cards indefinitely. 10 lucky winners will enjoy card benefits, including free Spotify, free Netflix, 3% back on all spending, and you can earn extra interest on your crypto deposit and more. Thanks, Crypto.com. Again, take the survey now, www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Again, that's www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Thank you so much, and I look forward to hearing from you all. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Jan Lieberman, co-founder of Delphi Digital. Welcome, Jan. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. Delphi Digital released a massive report on Bitcoin, time to the halving this week. It began with the current macroeconomic conditions that seem favorable to Bitcoin, such as quantitative easing, capital controls, and investors' search for safe haven assets. The section of the reports that you wrote concerned themselves more with analysis of the Bitcoin blockchain, and one of the metrics you analyzed was the Bitcoin wealth distribution over time. What did you find there? Yeah, so uh, we tracked the wealth distribution in in two ways. So the the first way was there was this the supply, distribution of supply by wallet size, meaning what percentage of the overall supply fell into a certain wallet. So you know, wallets holding one to ten Bitcoin, a certain percentage of supply was in those. What percentage of supply was in wallets holding ten to one hundred, and and so on and so forth. And so um, we tracked it, you know, back to inception, and and it's interesting. You can kind of see the the kind of distribution that happens on the the tail end. And, and so you know, wallets between 0.001 and 0.01 Bitcoin was as granular as we went. And that's basically um, one to $10. Let's just use the round number of $10,000 Bitcoin. So um, realistically, or sorry, uh, 10 to $100. And um, while that's a somewhat of a useful um kind of bucket to think about it in it's 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 a bit too small in terms of thinking about retail adoption so you know you kind of look at the next the next lineup which is 
uh, a 100th to 110th, which is 100 to $1,000. And you start to kind of get into the, the slightly more retail investy position. But then I think the, the, the one tenth to one and one to one, one to 10. So it's, you know, investors between holding between a thousand and a hundred thousand. I think the retail kind of fits in that bucket. And we've seen a consistent, um, consistent growth in those, in those numbers. And so if you're thinking about the amount of supply that's in wallets, uh, holding less than 10 Bitcoin. So, you know, what percentage of overall supply is in wallets that are holding less than about a hundred thousand dollars. And, and that, that number has grown considerably from the beginning of 2015, where it was 6%, where, uh, and at this point we're up to, um, almost 14 and a half percent. And I think that's significant in a handful of ways. One, because I think this kind of understates the distribution in two ways. One, the, the, the value of that Bitcoin back in 2015 was much less. So realistically, you know, you, the fact that you're starting to see while price increases, you're, you're still seeing these lower buckets fill up considerably. I think, uh, that's, that's very positive. And at the same time, the, the growth in coins on exchanges is obviously has picked up. And so that kind of understates the distribution because while, everyone's encouraged to kind of keep their own coins, you know, not your keys, not your coin and, and, and that kind of um, ideology. A lot of people are, are some are lazy. Some just don't care. Some really prefer the convenience and, and these and like, you know, keeping your coins on something like a Coinbase isn't that risky. It's, it's not advised, but realistically you, you, you should be fine. And so um, even though you're seeing this disbursement, you're, you're seeing the, the amount of these smaller wallets grow despite the fact that there's still a considerable amount of coins that are held on exchanges. And when they're held on an exchange, they're held in, in the exchange's hot wallet, which holds everyone's coins. So it, it mixes all of these would-be smaller wallets into one larger one. And that's why you kind of get an understatement on the lower end of the curve. And when you look at whale activity as well, like if we're, if we're going to be talking, you know, just in general about this wealth distribution, I was curious to know at that upper end, like, what are you noticing in terms of their activity? Absolutely. And so, so the one way was the distribution of, of quantity per, um, per wallet size, but the other was just the quantity of each of these wallets. So, and that, that's kind of where the, the whale accumulation distribution kind of thing happens where, while we saw these smaller wallets pick up, we also saw considerable growth in the quantity of wallets that hold 1,000 to 10,000 Bitcoin. And, and so, um, realistically, exchanges are popping up, but not at rapid rates. So you're not really seeing so many of these extra wallets come up. But so the, the way we kind of think about these, these are a lot of the earlier investors that are effectively smart money and you can if you kind of plot the quantity of wallets that hold over 1000 bitcoin and you plot that against price you can really see how the amount of these wallets grows when there's a, after a, a you know a post peak and the the multi-month multi-year sell-off you'll see those wallets accumulate and then as price starts to pick up you'll see those wallets you'll see the quantity of those wallets decline and so you kind of see how these individuals will accumulate during declines and then redistribute uh, basically for for profit in these rallies and so while we, we've seen this you know even just as much as just as recently as this past cycle we're now at a point where we're starting to see, or we've been seeing strong accumulation and growth 
and the quantity of wallets that are holding at least a thousand Bitcoin. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like in at both ends, there's um, kind of hodling activity, I guess you could say, amongst both the retail and the whales. Yeah, absolutely. And and even just tracking, you know, age of, of these UTXOs and kind of thinking about it that way, it really um, uh, shows how that's how that accumulation is happening. And you also tried to deduce whether Bitcoin was being used as a store of value by looking at the addresses that you believed were multi-sig wallets. What did you find when you looked at that? Sure. So um, multi-sig wallets are, are wallets where you need multiple signatures f- in order to move coins in and out. Basically, it's the, the simplest way to describe it. And there's different types. It's usually you need some kind of a majority, so two of three, three of five. Um, but w- what what happens is these when transactions go into these wallets, they leave a certain kind of um, signature. So you can basically track the amount of tokens that are held in these multi-sig wallets. And when you think of these types of wallets, they represent some kind of custody solution or some kind of advanced um, way of of holding Bitcoin more securely than than your normal retail investor would hold. And so you can track all those different types of wallets. And just looking back, um, even starting at the end of 2016, early 2017, you see a really big uptake in those wallets. And an interesting thing is, in order to know what type of wallet it sat in, the, the Bitcoin has to leave. So you basically get this bucket of unspent Bitcoin. And so meaning Bitcoin that was sent to a multi-sig but hasn't left. And so if you think about what that kind of means and you start to see that accumulation really pick up. And, and right now, you know, we're sitting at almost 4 million Bitcoin held in multi-sigs that are unspent and almost five across all of them. So I, I think it's, it's just another really good barometer of uh, institutional adoption, just based on the security measures that they would have to, um, you know, go through to, to kind of store that Bitcoin. And speaking of institutional interest, you did also look at how interest from them has, <laughs> from institutional investors has changed. <laughs> And what did you see there? It, it's definitely, I think, um, just COVID and, and everything that's happening in the world has accelerated a lot of timelines, um, both in terms of um, just, I guess, without kind of going too far down that rabbit hole, in, in terms of just in ter- uh, economics facing, you're you're really seeing an acceleration in the 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 Fed, the printing of money, and, and kind of the need to to support. Um, the, the need to, to provide funding to kind of support the population right now. And so with all this printing, people are starting to think about what does this mean for various asset classes? So with equities, you kind of see the disconnect between the economy and markets and, and what that means. And then um, a, a lot of the macro players are thinking about, all right, so in, in this kind of environment, you, you, when you with all this printing, but lack of, of demand, you, you see some kind of deflationary situation. But as the printing continues, you assume that inflation would kind of eventually rear its head. And so people are starting to think about how do I invest in order to position myself well for that? And, and the focus is one of the focuses has been on scarce assets. So you see a lot of macro investors talking about moving into gold. And now you're, you're kind of seeing the next frontier. And, and the big, big one was obviously Paul Tudor Jones coming out and really talking about how he's putting almost 2% of his net worth, which is, um, I think, uh, is about 100 to 200 million into into Bitcoin. And then um, also speaking w- about it with such conviction and and really, I think, opening the door for a lot of other macro managers. He's almost taking the, 
the career risk away from individuals for investing. And now you're, you're going to have a lot of these other macro managers think like they're going to, the Bitcoin conversations is going to come up again. They're going to have to revisit their thesis, whether they were bullish or bearish. And, and I think it's, it's just, it's now going to be a lot more of a common conversation um, in those investment committees. And, and kind of what, what I think could happen is, you know, uh, Bitcoin goes from being a, a fringe investment to almost the consensus one over the next 10 years as as these macroeconomic factors play out. Yeah. And, um, you know, just one small comment is also, I think Paul Tudor Jones was investing in Bitcoin futures, which is slightly different. Um, but one other thing I wanted to mention was that in your report, you also did get some data from Grayscale on flows into GBTC, which is um, basically um like a more like a traditional asset that does represent the price of Bitcoin and inflows into that were at about 390 million in dollars in quarter one, which was more than double from the previous quarter. And um, the average weekly investment was 30 million as opposed to 5 million in quarter two of 2019. Um, all right. So in a moment, we'll further dive into the facts from the Delphi Digital Bitcoin Report, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Jan Lieberman. So in terms of... Um, you know, talking about the other end of the spectrum, we talked about institutional, but then also, what did you see in terms of retail adoption, uh, particularly from Cash App? Sure, uh, Cash App is, is one of the the really easy vehicles for retail to kind of move into um, into, into Bitcoin, and so it, it's always it's been a, a pretty useful barometer for purely retail interest in the space and. and um, because Square is a public company, they, they release all, all the numbers. And so if you just look back and so the way that they kind of price it is they'll show revenue and, and gross profit with gross profit being the demand. I'm sorry, uh, with it's, they show revenue and, um, like in, in cost of goods and basically their cost of goods is what they charge is what clients are, are looking to spend on Bitcoin. And then the revenue is basically that money spent plus a fee. Then, which is what they collect in margin, and so you can use their cost of goods for from Bitcoin as basically a direct indication of of buy pressure. And so, a fun exercise to kind of do is is to map that against the dollar value of issuance during each quarter. And so, you can kind of do a, a back of the envelope type uh, just thought process of how much of issuance is being offset by direct square purchases. And to an extent, you know, it's, it's not to say that these people who are buying on square aren't selling at all either, but this value purely represents buying, but it's not to say that they aren't selling, but realistically, a lot of the individuals investing now, especially on the retail side, I don't see them, you know, selling after a thousand, I think because of how late a lot of these, a lot of this money is coming in. It's, it's, 
I'm sure if, you know, if we move up to the, to the teens, a lot of these people exit because it's just a lot of return. But at this point, I don't really expect there to, I, th- I think this is a bit one directional. And so, um, in terms of the percentage of issuance that's been offset by Square, that number has been growing where in Q3 of 2019, it was at 10%. In Q4, it was almost at, it was at like 12. And then in the past quarter, uh, 20% of Bitcoin issuance was effectively offset by Square purchases. And so we're really starting to see that number grow. And, and that's been you know a positive one to see. That's amazing. That's such a huge percentage. Um, one other thing you liked at was Bitcoin exchange inflows and outflows. And I wondered, so when inflows exceed outflows, what does that signify? And then, you know, same with vice versa, when outflows are greater than inflows. And also, what trend are we seeing now? Absolutely. And so typically, we'll track both Bitcoin and stablecoin inflows and outflows. And, you know, Bitcoin inflows to exchanges are typically bearish because there's only the main reason you're sending your Bitcoin to an exchange is, is to sell. And then we, and then for stable coin, it's, it's the convert, it's the opposite where sending stable coin to an exchange could be a proxy for future demand. So with, with Bitcoin specifically, um, over the past several years, we've just consistently had net inflows to exchanges. And that's not to say that people are constantly selling. I think the, the massive growth in, in stable, I mean, not stable coins, in altcoins, in Ethereum and, and all these other, um, coins that people like to speculate on or invest in because you have to buy those with Bitcoin most of the time on these exchanges. That's also been a lot of the natural um, reason that people have been selling Bitcoin, sending Bitcoin to exchanges. But again, that trend has been consistently growing where in the beginning of 2017, there was less than half a million Bitcoin on the exchanges. And then uh, at the very beginning of this year, there was a, a bit over two and a half million BTC on exchanges. But just this past quarter, for the first time in, in a long time, we've seen, or in basically ever in terms of, you know, having this trend happen for a few months, we've seen net outflows. So we've seen Bitcoin leaving exchanges. And I think that's, you know, decidedly bullish in the sense that you, there, you, you really can't sell your Bitcoin without moving it to an exchange. And so there, an overwhelming majority of the time when someone's removing it from that exchange, it's, it's with the intention of holding. And so I think you kind of see this confluence of, of the fact that a lot of people are moving away from exchanges. You're seeing a lot of this retail demand start to kick in through all of these avenues and, and all of these pipes are kind of really set up to, to, to facilitate all of this demand. You're seeing a lot of the longer term holders really hold and, and just the amount of, of overall supply, um, that's freely traded start to go down. And so I think you're, all of this kind of comes together into a point where now incremental demand will have a much more significant impact on price. And so there's not a lot of people that are in the space right now that are really looking to get out. It's, 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 it's tough to, to, to be in right now and not be overly bullish. So I think you have a lot of people in the space that are kind of continuing to invest. And at the same time, you've created all these avenues for external capital to come in both from the retail and institutional side. And, and then on top of that, you have the, the, the macroeconomic landscape that really um, shows that how, how a scarce that asset could be valuable in a situation where, you know, every, every currency is being kind of debased. And so speaking of um, people not spending their Bitcoins, you also did an analysis of unspent transaction outputs or UTXOs. 
when you do that analysis, what are you looking for? And what did you find here in terms of, you know, where Bitcoin is right now? Sure. So one of the one of the big things we, we like to do is is look at the relative dates of the UTXO. So you can kind of use these use the UTXO data in a handful of ways. Um, one of the ways to use it just on its own is by analyzing the age. So whenever a Bitcoin is sent, a UTXO is created as an unspent transaction output. Basically, means if I have fifty. Bitcoin, $50 worth of Bitcoin, and I want to send you 40, what happens is I send 50 and then I get 10 back. And so every time one of those is created, it's dated based on the first block it was included. And what that means is you can, when, when you aggregate all the UTXOs and, and by age, you can get an understanding of when different parts or when, or I guess the, the last time different portions of the overall supply have been moved. So, you know, X percent of the supply has been moved in the last three months, certain percent between three and six months, and you can go out as far as seven to 10 years. And so we like to track this to kind of on a, on a slightly longer time frame to get an understanding of how these, these holder flows uh, are taking place. And then when you map them against price, it, it really shows a clear picture of how, you know, you, you see long-term holders sell out on rallies. And then, and I'm not, I don't mean short-term rallies. I mean, these you know, longer um, cyclical rallies. And so we're at a situation now where we've, we've been in that strong accumulation phase and, and you're seeing the amount of supply that's been moved in the past year really reaching um, lows and rather thought differently, the amount that hasn't moved in at least a year reaching uh, its peaks. And it kind of really coincides with the distribution of the supply during the last halving in 2016, almost to an eerie level uh, in terms of the exact percentages. And so um, it's, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. And I think it it kind of feeds into that whole narrative and, and understanding of how people are, are starting to really hold on to their Bitcoin and and aren't looking to, to kind of take advantage of these smaller trades. And I think at the same time, that's why you're seeing so much growth in, in derivatives as well. It's It's been because you, you, you have this, this kind of battle, not battle, but it's a combination. The, the holder base is a combination of holders and obviously traders at the same time. And so the, the traders themselves are, are the ones dictating price, but the amount of liquid supply that's moving around, that's basically pricing the whole network is coming down. And so that's just a, a function of a lot of these other individuals holding. And so you, that's why you see a lot of growth in derivatives products and, and ways that people can speculate without actually having to own Bitcoin. And so I think. As the, the, like, I guess the scarcity element can kind of continues as people hold you, you factor in that incremental demand that's coming in. And I think, uh, it really positions things well to, to kind of, uh, help price go up basically. Yeah. And so one last piece I really want to dive into is the market value to realized value. I'm going to just full on admit, I had a hard time understanding this part of your analysis. So can you explain what that is, MVRV, and what you found when you looked at it? Sure. So it's a, it's a ratio that that's um, kind of used to think about how the uh, how the overall positioning of holders. So the, the numerator market value is just market cap, and the denominator uh, realized value is, so every time um, a Bitcoin is sent, a new UTXO is created. And then if imagine if you were to, based on the time that that UTXO moved, that's the price of that Bitcoin. So if, 
if somebody sent this Bitcoin several years ago when the price was, you know, a thousand dollars, that's the relative value of that UTXO. So it's a, it's based on, it's basically an aggregation of the underlying of all the Bitcoin in, in, in existence. And rather than the price being total supply times current price, it's, it's, uh, each individual UTXO based on when it was last moved, that's the price. And then you aggregate it that way. So thought differently, it's basically the, the it's why it's called realized value. So it's, it's, it can be thought of when, when the, the reason that you kind of use this ratio of market value to realized value is so realized value represents the value of the Bitcoin based on when it was last moved or, or bought and sold, which is kind of thought of interchangeably there. But the idea is that once realize once market cap really exceeds realized value, then you 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 have a, a situation where there's the the aggregate holder base is sitting on a lot of unrealized gains because these Bitcoin were last moved at you know a, a, a huge discount to where the market is currently, and that's not that doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, but in aggregate, it's a it's a pretty good measure of the the profit the position of profit of the, of the network basically. And so the way that the cycles work is the MVRV ratio. Basically it, it increases, it, it usually oscillates between one and four, but these periods, these oscillation periods are, are very long. So um, the last time it crossed above four was in the rally in, in 2017. And then when it typically, when it falls below one, which means there's the, the overwhelming majority of the network, the last time the Bitcoin was moved at, you know, at a certain price that's higher than the current market price now, that usually means there's been a massive sell-off and, and effectively the market has been oversold and those usually create really uh, fortunate buying opportunities. But what it basically means is how much unrealized gain there is in the aggregate base. Um, and so it, it's a really good barometer of just long-term cycles. And, and it even fell below one um, in this most recent sell-off uh, in March. So it's, it's, it's a very useful barometer in that, in that way, but it's, it's kind of starting to trend up. And so, uh, on the, on the following slide, we kind of did a distribution, um, year versus year. And, and so it, it's tough to completely describe, but basically it shows you the, the quantity of Bitcoin and each amount they're priced at. So you can kind of get an idea of when price is ascending, you're usually going to have a situation where the market value is starting to really exceed realized value because you know market value of the whole network will increase at the current price whereas realized value is fixed at the price when it was last moved which in in a situation where price is increasing the realized value is typically going to be below the market value and and it's a, it's a really good way to kind of figure out how overextended we are potentially in each direction and and in kind of create a, a another way to 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 support your thesis on whether or not you should be, you know, bearish or bullish in a specific situation. Okay. All right. So if you're saying it's like kind of similar to where we were in 2016, then essentially it's like in that position where um, it's moving in the direction of one of those phases in which more people would stand a profit if they were to sell, but we're not there yet. Right. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, exactly. It, it usually trends just because Bitcoin itself, it, it, like the biggest explainer of Bitcoin's price. If you you know use any kind of model, it's at Bitcoin's price because it's such a very momentum heavy asset. And so while it is in a position of profit right now, it's more so to indicate like 
that this is the direction we're trending in. And, and then it's, it's a good barometer when we seem to be overextended in one direction over another or another, it's a good indicator of how relatively overextended we are. And, and so right now the idea is that it's showing that it, the trend is beginning to kind of go in the, in the direction of up, but it's still very early. And, and so if you think about where this indicator stands relative to previous cycles, it's, it's about where we were in um, mid to late summer of 2016. Yeah. And I don't want anybody to interpret my comment as being predictive <laughs> in any way because um, it was also trending upward before March. Um, but then obviously it went back down to below one. So who knows what will happen? All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It was great having you on Unconfirmed. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Time for the news recap. First, the biggest news. The third Bitcoin halving occurred on Monday. So happy Bitcoin halving week. If you haven't yet, be sure to check out the episode I did with Amanda Fabiano of Fidelity and Christopher Van Dixon of CoinShares on the third Bitcoin halving. Now for the rest of the news. First headline, JP Morgan Chase, Banks, Coinbase, and Gemini. Oh my, times have changed. For years, crypto companies have struggled to obtain and maintain banking relationships. But now, JP Morgan Chase the second largest bank in the world, has taken on cryptocurrency exchanges Coinbase and Gemini as customers. Paul Vigna of the Wall Street Journal reported, quote, Coinbase and Gemini had to go through a long vetting process to get J.P. Morgan's approval. The fact that both are regulated by multiple parties played a big part in the approval process. Gemini obtained a trust charter from the New York State Department of Financial Services in 2015. Coinbase is registered as a money services business with Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, and also has a specialized license for crypto businesses called the Bit License from the New York DFS. Both are licensed as money transmitters in multiple states. This news is also notable because in 2017, JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon had criticized Bitcoin as, quote, a fraud that will, quote, eventually blow up. Next headline, Reddit tries out community points on Ethereum. Participants in the R cryptocurrency and R Fortnite BR subreddits, who have about 1 million members apiece, now have the ability to earn points on those subreddits as Ethereum-based tokens. The points for R cryptocurrency will be called moons, and the ones for R Fortnite BR will be called bricks. You can earn points by, quote, submitting quality posts and comments, which is basically the community deciding how many points someone deserves. They can also be spent on badges, custom emojis, and GIFs or GIFs. I really don't know how to pronounce this, and I think the internet has not decided either. And when you buy them, the points will be burned. Additionally, points will be used in voting, which will have two sets of results, one in which each member gets one vote, as well as the weighted count, in which members get a vote for every point they have. Reddit explains, by giving weight to votes, Community Points lets a community see how core contributors feel about a question or decision. Reddit also launched a vault, which would be familiar to any of you who have used a cryptocurrency web or app wallet before. And of course, it's the same situation where... If you lose your phone or private keys, you might lose access to your points. 
So Reddit recommends creating a secure encrypted backup of your private key on Reddit using a password different from your Reddit password, or you can also manually protect your vault using a seed phrase that you store in a secure place such as a password manager. It'll be interesting to see how Redditors who are new to crypto manage being their own bank. Other details that may be of interest, Community Points is currently in beta and will be on Ethereum's Rinkby testnet throughout the summer. Eventually, the points will be migrated to the Ethereum mainnet, and for the time being, Reddit will pay the gas fees since Redditors may not own Ether. Reddit itself will receive 20% of the tokens distributed, and each type of coin will approach a cap of $250 million. Next headline, and there's a reason that I've juxtaposed these two stories, which you will see in a minute. Telegram gives up on ton. In a blog post practically seething with frustration, Telegram founder and CEO Pavel Durov announced that the messaging company, which has been engaged in a legal battle with regulators, has decided not to proceed with the ton network but not after making a litany of explanations practically in disbelief over court judgments that did not go in Telegram's favor. For instance, he compares grams, the cryptocurrency Telegram was trying to build, to gold, and seems incredulous that a U.S. court would also block grams from being distributed globally, not just in the U.S., He says, quote, sadly, the U.S. judge is right about one thing. We, the people outside the U.S., can vote for our presidents and elect our parliaments, but we are still dependent on the United States when it comes to finance and technology. Meanwhile, Coindesk reports that some investors are discussing suing Telegram. One investor, Vladimir Smirkis, head of crypto startup Tokenbox, told Coindesk, quote, We are considering filing a lawsuit, as the money Pavel Durov spent on the project got investors nothing, while at least it would be fair to talk about getting Telegram's equity, for example. However, Coindesk writes, quote, Pavel Durov has famously been unwilling to dilute his ownership of Telegram, and according to company spokesperson Remy Vaughn, an equity distribution is definitely not on the table now. Next headline, some ether whales may be departing for Bitcoin. According to data from Glassnode, the seven-day average of the number of unique addresses holding 10,000 ETH or more fell to 1,050, down 6% from December and the lowest level since January 2019. In contrast, the number of Bitcoin whale addresses has increased to 111 at the end of April, which is the highest level since August 2019. Some analysts speculate that this may be due to an anticipated bull run following the third Bitcoin having this past Monday. However, others believe that the ETH may also have been moved into DeFi, where whales could, for instance, earn money from lending. Meanwhile, the number of addresses containing 32 or more Ether is at an all-time high. The minimum balance needed to become a validator in ETH 2.0 is 32 ETH. Next headline. Post having the Bitcoin hash rate is declining. Larry Cermak of The Block tweeted a graph showing that the 90 block average for block times is now at 14 minutes on the Bitcoin blockchain. Additionally, miners who were making about $18 million a day, with 4% of that coming from fees, before the halving, made only $7.9 million on Wednesday, with 13% of that coming from transaction fees. 
We will have to keep watching this space. Next headline, conflicts of interest. Firm with ties to Ben Lasky raises $140 million for Bitcoin fund. Forbes reports that New York Digital Investment Group disclosed it had raised $140 million in a Bitcoin fund. It previously had an investment fund called the Bitcoin Strategy Fund, which was advised by Stone Ridge Asset Management LLC, a $15 billion firm whose head of regulatory affairs is Ben Lasky, the much maligned architect of the New York Bit License. Lasky has said that he is banned for life from working on any matters he dealt with during his time at the New York Department of Financial Services. Fun bits. The first fun bits is how F2 Pool chose that NYT headline to include in the block before the halving. NY Times, 9th of April, 2020, with $2.3 trillion injection, Fed's plan far exceeds 2008 rescue, was the headline that F2 Pool put into block 629999, which was the last block before the third Bitcoin halving on Monday. For those of you who don't know, this refers back to the headline included in the Genesis block of the Bitcoin blockchain, which read, The Times, 3rd of January, 2009, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. Wang Chun, co-founder of F2Pool, explained at Coindesk Distributed how they chose that headline to include in that block. If you find the link in my show notes, you can watch the brief video clip. As Andreas Antonopoulos tweeted about the headline that F2Pool chose, iconic. Next fun bits, A16Z Crypto Startup School publishes course videos. A16Z Crypto Startup School began publishing its course videos one of which will be released each week. The first two are out now with a first talk by A16Z Crypto general partner Chris Dixon talking about why crypto networks matter. The second one, called Blockchain Fundamentals, Cryptography and Consensus, is by Stanford professor Dan Bonet, and that's also out. Coming up are a talk by Brian Armstrong of Coinbase on setting up and scaling a crypto company, business models by Ali Yahya, partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and Protocol to Products by Nitya Subramanian, product manager at Cello, among others. Last, FunBits. Bitcoin for the open-minded skeptic. The last FunBits I'll leave you with for the week is a piece that Matt Huang of Paradigm wrote up on why, as he puts it, quote, never before have we seen more interest in Bitcoin and its potential as a digital companion to gold. There is nothing in this PDF that would be new for most of you listeners, and he even says, quote, this paper does not claim any novel insight. Instead, it, instead, it is a summary of the conversation we often have with investors seeking to understand Bitcoin for the first time. I'm just sharing it with you all because I know a lot of people in this space are often looking for ways to explain Bitcoin to newbies, and I think this could be really useful on that score. It's very clearly written, it has subheads, it has bullets, and it just might come in handy for some of you. All right, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Yawn and Delphi Digital, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. And don't forget, it's time to take the Unchained survey. Tell us what you'd like to see from us on Unchained and Unconfirmed. You can find the survey in the show notes or just go to www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Plus, 
Crypto.com has offered our survey respondents a chance to win a metal MCO Visa card. And Crypto.com will stake these cards indefinitely. 10 lucky winners will enjoy card benefits including free Spotify, free Netflix, 3% back on all spending, and you can earn extra interest on your crypto deposit and more. Thank you, Crypto.com. Again, take the survey now at www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Again, that's www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.